Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Nadia Hashimi, the author of The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, a novel about two women living in Afghanistan a century apart. The story begins with Rahima, nine years old, the third of five daughters in a nondescript village several days' journey from Kabul, shortly after the U.S. invasion. She is on her way home from school. Chapter 1, Rahima Shala stood by our front door, the bright green metal rusting on the edges. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Nadia Hashimi, the author of The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, a novel about two women living in Afghanistan a century apart. The story begins with Rahima, nine years old, the third of five daughters in a nondescript village several days' journey from Kabul, shortly after the U.S. invasion. She is on her way home from school. Chapter 1. Rahima Shala stood by our front door, the bright green metal rusting on the edges. She craned her neck. Harwin and I rounded the corner and saw the relief in her eyes. We couldn't be late again. Harwin shot me a look, and we picked up our hurried pace. We did the best we could without running. Rubber soles slapped against the road and raised puffs of dusty smoke. The hems of our skirts flapped against our ankles. My headscarf clung to beads of sweat on my forehead. I guess Parwins was doing the same since it hadn't yet blown away. Damn them. It was their fault. Those boys, with their shameless grins and tattered pants, this wasn't the first time they'd made us late. We ran past the doors, blue, purple, burgundy, spots of color on a clay canvas, Shala waved us toward her. Hurry, she hissed frantically. Panting, we followed her through the front door. Metal clanged against the door frame. Harwin, what did you do that for? Sorry, sorry, I didn't think it would be that loud. Shala rolled her eyes, as did I. Harwin always let the door slam. What took you so long? Didn't you take the street behind the bakery? We couldn't, Shala, that's where he was standing. We had gone the long way around the marketplace, avoiding the bakery where the boys loitered, their shoulders hunched and their eyes scouting the cocky jungle that was our village. Besides pick-up games of street soccer, this was the main sport for school-age boys, watching girls. They hung around, waiting for us to come out of our classrooms. Once off school grounds, a boy might dart between cars and pedestrians to tail the girl who'd caught his eye. Following her helped him stake his claim— this is my girl, it told the others, and there's only room for one shadow here. Today my twelve-year-old sister, Shala, was the magnet for unwanted attention. The boys meant it to be flattering, but it frightened the girl since people would have loved to assume that she'd sought out the attention. There just weren't many ways for the boys to entertain themselves. Shala, where is Rahila? I whispered. My heart was pounding as we tiptoed around to the back of the house. She's taken some food to the neighbor's house. Marjan cooked some eggplant for them. I think someone died. Died? 
My stomach tightened, and I turned my attention back to following Shala's footsteps. Where's Mother John? Parwin said, her voice a nervous hush. She's putting the baby to sleep, Shala said, turning toward us. So you better not make too much noise, or she'll know you're just coming home now. Parwin and I froze. Shala's face fell as she looked at our widened eyes. She whipped around to see Mother John standing behind her. She had come out of the back door and was standing in the small paved courtyard behind the house. And now, please join me in welcoming Nadia Hashimi. Hi, Nadia. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. As I always do, let's begin with you. Uh, the Pearl That Broke Its Shell is your first novel, as I understand. Yes, it is. Uh, but you yourself work as a pediatrician. So how did you decide to write fiction? Yes, I'm a pediatrician, um, but before I was a pediatrician, I've been a, a lover of books, and I absolutely have been an avid reader for most of my life. Um, I grew up just really enjoying stories and really enjoying any kind of novel that I could get my hands on to. Um, and I think during my education and during my professional career, I put a lot of that aside for time constraints and other reasons. Um, when I was freshly married, I was having a discussion with my husband and he, you know, wanted to know about what I used to enjoy in the past. And he knew that I loved reading still. Um, but I did mention to him that I used to want to be a writer, or at least dream of writing. And he really encouraged me to take some time and just try it out despite our busy schedules. And so with his encouragement, I sat down and I decided that there was an important story that I kind of wanted to get out there. And The Pearl That Broke a Shell is what came out of that conversation. Well, so so you sat down and you wrote. Did you take classes or um, did you do it all on your own, basically? <laughs> I did it all on my own. I did not take classes. Um, I just kind of sat down and I knew I wanted to talk about women in Afghanistan and specifically girls growing up in Afghanistan and becoming women. Um, and so I sat down and started to think of different ways that I could approach that topic and showcase what the difference was between a girl growing up in Afghanistan, the challenges that she faced, the obstacles that she would need to overcome um, versus a girl growing up somewhere else in the world. And from that, this story kind of spilled out without me planning a whole lot or thinking about it in a way of, you know, how should I approach being a writer or kind of analyzing it in that respect. It was just kind of, let me just tell the story. It's a really lovely uh, book, so I'm glad that you that you stuck with it. Um, you said elsewhere, and you mentioned just now, that this was a story you felt you had to tell. What, what is it about the story that made it something you had to tell? Well, when I grew up, I have parents who came, immigrated here to the United States from Afghanistan, and they came here in the early 1970s. They left Afghanistan as a very peaceful country, um, a roughly modernized country, uh, women were engaged in the workforce. They were obtaining their, you know, professional degrees. They were going for higher education. They were traveling abroad to get educated. My mother is a is an engineer. She went abroad for her education. Um, so they left behind a very different country. And in the time that they had come to the United States, things fell apart relatively quickly, and everything changed. Um, so I grew up learning about an Afghanistan that was very different than what I was witnessing on the news as a child. 
And especially when we had the introduction of this, the really restrictive regime of the Taliban, who put so many um, restrictions on the movement of girls and on the education of girls, the difference between my life and the life the lives of my cousins or my counterparts who were growing up in Afghanistan became really, really clear. And it was a very bleak future that they had. Um, so I really wanted to talk about the difference that can be made just by where you happen to be born. Um, and I wanted to highlight the differences that, that were in place for those girls. Yes, it's, it's very striking. And, and although I think the book is ultimately uplifting. At times, the the story seems very bleak, uh, in a sense. I mean, it's it's good that it is. It's it's accurately recapturing what these girls are going through, but it it really brings it home. What a difficult position they're in. There and there are there are different slivers of society, and so what I wanted to touch upon were the more difficult situations. There are a lot of girls who go through not exactly Rahima's story, but similar situations. So there's a lot of truth in there. Um, that being said, it's not the it's not the story of every girl in Afghanistan. And I think that's also important to keep in mind because that is part of the, the hope that we have to have. Um, being that it is not the story of every girl in Afghanistan, there is a chance that it can be the story of none of the girls of Afghanistan. And I know from my own family's experience, they have not had the types of situations that Rahima's had. They have had where, you know, during the Taliban regime, the girls were removed from schools. Uh, Many of the families that uh, in our extended clan had to go abroad to different countries and lived as refugees so that girls could get their education elsewhere. They've returned to the country and, a lot of strides have been made. So Rahima's story really takes place in the post-Taliban period. And uh, the opportunities that she's seeing are, they're just, they're very, very depending on which part of the country you're in. So the story that's in the Pearl is is one sliver of society, as I said. But there's a, there's a big variety in with the experience of girls, depending on where in the country you are and depending on which family you're born into. There's as much difference. So let's start with Rahima, uh, who's, uh, as you mentioned, living in the immediate post-Taliban period. Um, there's this wonderful passage early in the book where uh, they refer to America coming to uh, avenge a building and, and that people have been so destroyed by the experience of living under the Taliban that they can't imagine that, that America is coming to because it's lost only a single building, you know. Um, so tell us about Rahima, who she is, and uh, about her family, uh, her personality. Sure. Rahima is the middle child in her family. Uh, her father is someone who aspired to be more, and by the circumstances of the country, did not live up to his own goals for himself. Um, so he may have wanted to be an engineer, and he's ended up you know, fighting alongside a, a local warlord not having accomplished much in his lifetime. Her mother is someone who's basically trying to get by, keep her family together, keep her in-laws happy, and raise her children to the best of her ability, given the circumstances and given the limited resources that she has. Uh, So in this family, Rahima, as I said, is falling in the middle. And uh, in her 
particular case, it works to her advantage in some ways. Uh, she has two older sisters who are a bit more responsible than she is, and she's a bit more spunky and restless. And maybe for those reasons, in this family of all girls, um, where uh, the the place of the boy is is a, is an empty space and and that needs to be filled, the family decides to convert her, the spunky middle child, into a bachapush, which is a girl who's dressed as a boy. And what that does for her is it enables her to have a bit more mobility outside of the home and allows her to be able to go to school and do things that she otherwise wouldn't be able to do as a girl. Yes, and she, it surprises her even. I mean, she's given a boy's name. Uh, she's converted to Rahim and she's, her hair is cut and she's dressed as a boy. And it, as soon as that happens, everyone treats her as a boy which explain a little bit about what that means, what the, what the, how it affects her life, how, how it makes her life different. The Bachapos custom in Afghanistan is kind of an interesting one. And it, when you talk to Afghans who are living outside of Afghanistan or even within Afghanistan, everybody knows of a Bachapos. It's something that happened commonly enough that it was in the background um, not every single family without sons would convert one of their daughters into a boy. But in, in a, it happened enough that either it was a neighbor or you had a cousin or you knew of a friend whose daughter was one. And it exists in this backdrop where the society understands the need for it. When you put a burden on a family that not having a son, it makes you incomplete. And that there are certain things that boys can do that girls cannot do. There's a certain honor that they bring to their family that a girl cannot bring to her family. You create a need for a family to be able to fix that situation. And this Bachapush custom is that creative solution to this self-inflicted problem in a, in a patriarchal society. So Rayma being converted is... It's a process that the community understands and they accept. They're complicit with it because they understand that they've also created the need and the family is going to go out and, and do this. Um, now, this is done to a child who doesn't really give her consent. And these children may not know about the practice until they're actually transformed themselves. Um, and in Raima's case, that's what it is. She doesn't, she's not very familiar with the practice, but um, it's a very simple one. It's changing their appearance, and which really doesn't take very long for a child who has not reached sexual maturity. The child is transformed very easily, um, and it's just that shallow little veneer of that um, appearance that can change the identity of the child and that child's role in society. And how does that change Rahima's life? What, what can she do uh, as a result of being a, a bachaposh that she could not do before? What Rayma can do as a bachaposh is she can escort her sisters to school, um, serving almost as a chaperone so that other, you know, little boys cannot harass the sisters, that they'll have somebody that will be in their defense um, around them, almost as a bit of a guardian, even if she's younger. Um, things that she can do on her own, she can go out and work alongside other people in the marketplace. In Afghanistan, you have a lot of children that work um, 
selling things on the streets or working in shops as a sort of a, you know, assistant to the shop owners, different things like that. Um, the economy and the situation is just very different. We don't have, there aren't the same kinds of child labor restrictions that there are in the U.S. And many of them are not respected because of the situation. Families are in desperate need of, of finance. Um, so for, for families that are, that have a boy, a, a dressed up boy engaging in, in the marketplace that can actually bring home a, a bit of money. Um, though that's not the main driver for turning a child into a bacha push. Um, the other thing that she can do is that she can look people in the eyes. So if she's out on the street and there's a man talking to her, what a girl would do is a girl would turn her gaze and she wouldn't meet the man directly eye to eye. It's a, it's a show of modesty and girls do not are taught not to walk with that kind of a, a confidence. They are taught to just be more humble and modest and not draw attention to themselves. Boys are not taught the same thing. And so Raima as a bachapush can walk through the streets and meet people's gaze and she can speak with a bit more authority and confidence. And it just creates a very different personality for her. As I listen to you talking, this is completely, it's almost off the wall, but it, it, I remember I went to Mount Holyoke and uh, this was a while ago when um, the feminist movement was just getting started. And I remember being in class and learning uh, that you could, you know, I was just in a group of women and I could talk uh, without having to worry as, you know, 17, 18 year old girls normally do about what the boys were thinking. And it was a very freeing thing. And I noticed even in graduate school that women who had been to um, one of the seven sisters tended to be more self-confident and able to present themselves in class. This is a quite different approach, of course, but it mm-hmm. is, there is this sense that at least traditionally, probably less so now, women are, are in lots of cultures, are trained to kind of um, play down their own strengths and you know, avoid challenging men and all of this kind of thing. It is. It's, it's something that, you know, I've painted the picture of the, the roles of girls being different in Afghanistan. But the truth is that, that it's not specific to Afghanistan. It's something that's seen all around the world. So men and women have very different expectations in society. I mean, very recently, we had one of the um, Silicon Valley CEOs comment that women should not ask for raises. Yes, right. Just perform. <laughs> And so that's, I mean, how far are we from, from what we're talking about where you have a CEO saying that, you know, don't ask for your raise, don't, don't speak out and voice it, um, just kind of, you know, chug along and do your work and then somebody eventually will tell you that you deserve it. Um, so we have people here in a very modern, very advanced and what should be a very progressive society and you have educated leaders in certain fields telling women not to advocate for themselves and not to be confident, really. That's the, that's the message that they're sending. And so, you know, that was a big foot in the mouth. But um, And there have been apologies for it subsequently. But where did that notion come from? And so it must have been there and not very far beneath the surface for it to come up so readily. And I don't think that that's a a comment that is unique to that particular CEO. I think you have a lot of that sentiment in in various parts of our society here in the Western world as well. So, and that's part of the story is, is it being so translatable 
from Afghanistan, but the same kinds of obstacles and the same mentalities being found in different parts of the world, just to, you know, varying degrees, but it's, I think it's everywhere. Yes. Yes. I think it's everywhere, perhaps more extreme, um, in this particular setting, not so much because it's Afghanistan, but because it is, um, at least at the beginning, it's mostly a rural setting. It's a very traditional culture that is, uh, at least in Rahima's case, because we're going to get to her great-grandmother in a minute, uh, it's really just coming out from under the control of the Taliban who have this very extreme view. But, you know, that's fiction. You, you look for the most extreme means of expressing a story because that's what really gets at the emotions of it. It's, it's right. certainly not distinct to past historical periods or particular cultures. It's, it's right, there. Right. No, I think in telling a story, you do go, uh, you know, above and beyond so that you can get a point across and that you can draw attention to a matter. But, um, but yeah, there are a lot of truths that are in there uh, to varying degrees. So the thing with Rahima is, as I mentioned in the introduction, she's only nine years old when we first meet her. And as you said, it's a, this Vachaposh thing is typically something that goes on before puberty. So it's, in a way, it, it gives her these gifts that she will be able to draw on going forward. But it also puts her in a quite a difficult position because at a certain point, she doesn't get to be a vacha. It's not like she's a boy who then grows into a man for her family. Right. And so there are two transitions that happen in the life of a bacha posh. And some bacha poshes are created right at birth. And so they may not appreciate that first transition very much. They may be raised their entire lives or their the, the first part of their lives as a boy and not having experienced anything different. Um for other Bachaposhas like Rahima, it's done a little bit later in their childhood. And they still may not appreciate the full difference of it, depending on what their life was like beforehand. Um, the second transition comes when these uh, sons are then transformed back into their, their born gender, which is to be a girl. Uh, and that transition can be a much more difficult one, especially depending on when in their lives it happens. And the tradition is supposed to end before the child reaches puberty because um, you do not want to have a, a true girl who's becoming a woman who's really of marriageable age interacting with young men in a way that's not appropriate for a girl to interact with boys. So it's it's a much more forgivable interaction if it's just children, whereas you know it's someone who's past puberty. It, it can become awkward because some people will realize that she is not actually a girl, despite what she may feel like. So the transition can be difficult because you have a child who's grown into an identity, a gender identity that is different than what people all of a sudden want to see her as. And she may feel uncomfortable. A lot of these um, girls, when you interview them, they may feel like this is not my true identity. I don't want to be a girl. I'm very happy having lived this much of my life as a boy, and I'd like to continue that way. Yes, and in this case, Almay, technically, I suppose um, a girl can be considered a marriageable age as soon as she enters puberty. But in our society, that's typically not so. Whereas for Rahima, 
you know, when she becomes, she's actually kept in her boy pose a little bit longer than people think is really necessary, but she's married off at 13. She is, um, which, you know, again, is one experience that happens to some Afghan girls, not to all Afghan girls. It just depends on the situation. Um, and for her, I, I wanted to show how drastic the, the, the shift in her life was and how dramatic it was that she essentially thought of herself as a boy and really was enjoying these liberties. And then she had that taken away and, and girls will have a, some period of their lives where they're returned to a girl and they're trying to relearn their gender and their experience. Um, but then they're sometimes very quickly married off and they become a wife. And how hard must it be to go from being a boy to a wife? It's it's an incredible shift. Um, and the, the world kind of turns upside down for these individuals. Uh, yes. And um, in, in Rahima's case, she's married to a much older man as... A fourth wife, right? She is, yes. Um, and, you know, polygamy is something that does happen in the Afghan world. It's less and less common these days for a variety of reasons. It's something that, you know, happened more in the past. But for, for you know, you do have this, this little echelon of society where there are these warlords who have a lot of power. They have a lot of influence in their local area. And, and that's really created by... Um, the vacuum that was left in the wake of so many wars and, and so many regime changes where you didn't really have a stable government. And so you had these local warlords that have a lot of um, uh, kind of provincial control and influence and, and uh, notoriety in some cases, but you know, people respect them. They may turn to them or they may just want to cooperate with them so that they will have um, you know, a bit of favor coming towards their own families. Yes, that's the political background, which was very interesting, too, because, you know, we hear, hear about these warlords on the news. And so understanding what that means in a practical sense is, is one of the pluses of the book, I think. Um, there is a, a, how should I put this? Um, and I apologize because I didn't ask you in advance if it's okay to read this passage. But there is a passage where the marriage negotiations are being set up, where we can see the impact of Rahima's past as a bachaposh. And I was wondering if you would read it or if you don't want to, if you would like me to read it uh, to give a sense of, of where the, um, how this, this past of hers, how this transition works really more than anything else. It's around page 121. Sure, I can read it. Let me look it up. We should mention that Abdul Halik is the warlord. Yes. Okay. Go for it. Um, you're starting at the, at the top of page 121? Yeah, around there, wherever okay. it seems to you to really capture the the spirit of the marriage negotiations. Okay. Abdul Khalik, the warlord, his father gave him a look. Let me do the talking, his eyes said. We must often think of what is in everyone's best interests. In this case, you have a young woman whom my son would like to honor as his wife. Our family is large and well-respected, as you know. Your daughter would do well to join our family and a union between us would be cause for celebration. Of course, as a result, you would be better able to provide for your family as well. My daughter. Yes, if you give it some thought, I'm sure you'll see it's the wisest choice. But my eldest is, we're not here for your eldest daughter, Arif John. I'm speaking of your middle daughter, the Bachapush. 
My son has expressed an interest in her. The Bachapush? Yes, and do not be surprised. You have kept her as a Bachapush beyond what anyone should accept. You are breaking tradition. I turned around and looked at my mother, my face drained of color. My father was silent. I knew he was wondering how Abdul Khalik knew about me, but word had way of traveling. I remember the day in the bazaar, the way Abdul Khalik had looked at me, and the way he had smirked and nodded when the man next to him leaned in and whispered something in his ear. My mother's fingers tightened as she wrapped her arms around me. She was shaking her head, willing her husband to refuse this man and praying he could do so in a way that wouldn't offend him or his guns. With all due respect, sir, it's just that, well, she is a bachapush, but I have two other daughters older than her, and as you said, we are people of tradition and usually the younger daughters are not given until the eldest. I just don't think... There was a long pause before Abdul Khalik's father began to speak again, slowly and deliberately. You are right. It would be improper to give your middle daughter's hand without the other two being wed as well. For a second I could breathe, but it was only a second. But this can be easily arranged. My cousins are here, Abdul Sharif and his brother Abdul Haidar. They're looking for wives as well. We can arrange for each of them to take one of your daughters. They are strong men, able-bodied and will provide well for your girls, who are now young women and should not be kept idle at home. Let these men bring honor to your home and ease your troubles. Abdul Khalik, dear uncles, you know I hold you in the highest regard, but... But this is a matter, well, tradition dictates that I should consult with my family, as you have done. I cannot make such decisions without the presence of my father and our gray-haired family members. Abdulkhalik's father nodded in understanding. Reasonable. This is not a problem. We shall return in one week's time. Kindly arrange to have your father and your elders here so that we may meet with them. Thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so, of course, then... Uh, this father who of Rahimas, who has five girls to dispose of, a la Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> is uh, quite eager to take the deal. Um, but it does reveal the, I suppose you could say, the ambivalent nature of the Bachaposh, because it's only because Rahima has been dressed as a boy that she runs into Abdulhalik's, um, you know, that she gets his attention in the marketplace, and yet. What he wants her for is the exact opposite of what he has been attracted to, in effect. Correct, correct. And so you have to wonder about him in more ways than one. Yes, uh, right. But uh, that just—that was just to add to the the confusing situation there. Right. Um, there's a lot there that I would love to talk about about her life uh, as a wife, but I think we should at least mention that since this is new books in historical fiction, it is not Rahima's story, which is actually the historical part of it. Uh, so let's get to her great-grandmother and talk, because there are certain parallels in their lives that become important in terms of revealing the um, uh, the position of women in, in Afghanistan at different periods and also the way that modern situation, in a sense, replicates the historical situation, despite the fact that there are, is this period of several decades in the middle, which is quite different. Yes. Um, so what's missing is that is that golden age of Afghanistan, unfortunately. Um, I do try to allude to it and, and hint that we're coming up upon it um, in part of the story for the the first character, Shikeba. Um 
But yeah, that golden period is missing. And so what we see are two parallel periods where women do not have much opportunity. They are kind of subjugated. They're second-class citizens, if you can call it that. Um, the opportunities allowed for them, the, you know, the respect that they're given by their counterparts in society, it, it's very different than um, what we would want to see for any woman. Um, and But both of the stories kind of start to reach a time as we as we near the end of each of the characters' stories, where there is a sign of hope, there's a glimmer of hope. Now, in Shikeba's story, we're coming up on that golden age. Um, and that would be really my mother's generation. As I mentioned, the women who are out in the workforce and, and you know, part of society in, in a very big way. Um, in Raima's story, it's the same thing. We're starting to see that that time period kind of come round again, that pendulum swinging in the other direction. And right now in Afghanistan, I, I may have written Rayma's story as a contemporary, and that is one experience in Afghanistan. But at the same time, there's a lot happening in, in the current world. You have a huge representation of women in the government, uh, a true representation. So you have real parliamentarians out there sharing their voices, representing their constituencies, you know, running in the elections, winning the elections, um, and then going to the government and being part of the changes that are happening tomorrow and being part of their nation's future. You have women that have very, you know, high standings within government. The recent elections, you had women running on the as vice presidents on the ballots. And that is a huge change. If you think about just how much time has past since the the Taliban really had control and really had their their fingers wrapped around the neck of Afghanistan and its women to now it's a huge amount of progress um, and strides that women have made in Afghanistan well as sad as it is golden ages don't make nearly such riveting fiction so <laughs> we're kind of stuck with the ungolden ages <laughs> that's very true but we we just I think we do need that glimmer of hope you know and so, yes, we, we need to talk about what's wrong um, so that we can get to what's right. And yes, the, the golden ages, you know, if I sat there and, and, and no, the, the evening news, when you turn it on, you're not going to hear all the good things that happened in the world today because, um, you know, that's, first of all, sadly, not the most interesting thing for us. And that's also maybe not where our attention should be because maybe we need to be fixing problems. Well, I think that you're right. It's important for the novel to have the golden age at the end, uh, whether it's a real one or, um, you know, some hope that will that causes you to feel that the problems have been solved. I mean, novels are about solving problems. So could you tell us something about her and her early life? Shikeba is a very remarkable character. Um, and she's someone who grew up in a very loving family, but she grew up in a very tough time period. And uh, they're, they're living in a rural area in Afghanistan. It's not specified. I wanted to make it more general. She's the daughter of um, a very loving couple. And they live close by the father's extended family, which is not uncommon. That's It's pretty typical for families to or clans to be within very close proximity with one another. What happens to her family is that she, at a very young age, is disfigured by a cooking accident. And so her, her face is scarred. And that really changes her experience for the rest of her life. Um, 
sometimes in Afghanistan, people with disabilities are looked at differently and not with the same, you know, respect that they should really have. Um, and so sometimes people are actually defined by a disability or by an injury and it becomes part of them. Um, and that's part of her early experience from there. Her family goes on to be affected by a cholera epidemic. And in keeping this as a historical fiction book, the cholera epidemic really did happen at that time period in Afghanistan. It was devastating. Um, It really decimated the population. And that's what happens to um, Shakeba's family. So she loses her siblings, which is a very tough experience for her. And the loss of the siblings really affects her mother in a way that's... um, that's just not survivable. Um, and so she's left with her father and it's her and her father. And her father is somebody that sees her really not as a daughter and not as a son, but sees her as his child. And they develop a different kind of relationship and they work together on this farm and they become very insulated from the rest of society because they feel like the rest of society has turned on them. So they really just rely on each other and they, you know, chug along and have this existence. And she's pretty comfortable in that way until she, by circumstances, you know, finds herself alone and she's absorbed by her extended family who treat her um, the way some orphans are treated, which is not very nicely. Yes. And then at a certain point, well, there is a dispute over the land because her father has been um, an excellent farmer. He was the best farmer in the family. And then, but as he became weaker and, you know, he's lost his family and so on, uh, the, I get the impression that the land kind of goes downhill, but he's still farming it. And then, but then it is land and in rural communities, land is very important. So his, her extended family essentially takes the land away because she's a woman, right? Correct. And so they don't want her to, um, you know, they, there's some jealousy issues there. Um, so the rest of the family wants to take that land. They believe it's the most fertile land and that should have, shouldn't have gone to that particular brother anyway. Um, and they see her as a child. And beyond that, they see her as a female child. And so they don't think that she should have any claim to that land and they want it to revert back to the rest of the family. So her father's brothers and, and whatnot. Um, and she feels differently. And maybe that's because she's been living on her own and has not been engaged with the rest of society and hasn't heard differently. Um, but she feels like this is her land. She's been working this land. She knows that her father would have wanted her to have that land. And, and so she has the that sense of entitlement despite the rest of society. And uh, when they try to tell her that she's wrong for thinking that, she doesn't believe them. And it's that challenging of the status quo. So that is that that link between her and her legacy later in the story, um, Rahima, is that believing that what is around you and that status quo, maybe we need to shake things up and maybe it's not okay. And somehow uh, Shakiba gets married off, even though she's disfigured, uh, in part, I think, because she's a very hard worker. And she also is not a first wife, but she moves into a situation which is not too dissimilar from the one that Rahima encounters. Uh, for Shakiba, it's like 1900, 1910, somewhere around there. Yes. Um, 
she she becomes you know i think in society everybody ends up falling into a place in afghan society you can't really have individuals that are floating around especially women or, or young women um they can't live on their own they have to be absorbed into a, a a family and kind of claimed and in her case that's what happens to her so she is married and you know for for a very specific reason she ends up with the husband that she ends up with and she tries to take ownership of her life because you know you may have ended up in a certain family by circumstances that were beyond your control but she feels like once she's there she wants to take charge and kind of you know take the reins and and have some kind of say in where her life goes from that moment now i don't want to take the story past the point where you're comfortable but there is this other very interesting parallel um, in which Shakiba, for a while, in effect, becomes a man. Do you want to talk about that, or should we talk about the institution that makes that possible, which is, which is another kind of out for this very patriarchal society, one that lets women do something different? No, I think it's fine to talk about her, her period as a guard. Okay, well, tell us about that. What happens to Shakeba is that she ultimately finds her way through, you know, a series of steps and passing from one hand to another. She finds her way to the royal palace in Kabul. And there she becomes a guard serving the king. And she works as a guard that protects his harem. And what the king had, which was true for that time period, um, the king had employed several women who would dress as men to guard his harem. And it was said that he had done this because he did not trust men to guard his harem. He had quite a, a large harem of women um, who were his consorts outside of his wife. Um, and so Shakeba takes on this role and she finds herself dressed as a man, which for her is not the most unnatural thing because when she was much younger working alongside her father, she was kind of a gender neutral person. Nobody had really told her that she was a girl or, but she was, you know, working as a boy would. Um, and so for her, gender has less definition or less meaning. Um, and when she becomes this guard, she almost feels good about it. And, and it almost in a way feels good for her to put pants on, although it seems strange at first, but I think she starts to relish the role and the responsibility she's given. Yeah, I think it, I remember reading that this was actually quite common in Mughal India, was that they used female guards for the harem. I don't know if that's where your uh, your uh, Afghani king got it, but it is. I, I think there is a tradition of doing that. There's a whole tradition in Turkic uh, culture, which Afghanistan is not really a part, but Central Asia immediately on top of Afghanistan and, and the Mughals because they were conquered from Central Asia are part of it in which you have women warriors. It's, it's quite interesting. And I think probably for Westerners unexpected because they assume that these are all very male dominated societies and they are male dominated societies, but it doesn't necessarily play out exactly in the way that, that people here expect it to. I think you're right. And, and that's, what's been interesting as, you know, as part of reading about the budget push custom more in a, in a global way, um, there are pockets of women dressing as men in different areas of the world or in different time periods also, and for different reasons. But there is, I think it, it sums it up by, you know, that's all born out of the need of having 
women who can't do something because they're just because they're women. It's that gender restriction. So in order to bypass that, you will have women who dress as men for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and it does show up in war uh, in early modern Europe and the American Revolution. I mean, it, there are, there's this whole sort of largely undiscussed um, undercurrent of, of women who are not getting with the program at various times in history, which is quite interesting to study. Yes, yes. And you have to wonder if each of those time periods and each of those pockets of women have actually helped kind of make a small leap, you know, in the in the advancement of the role of women. Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I'd like to talk about before we um, begin to wind down is uh, the poetry, uh, which is another characteristic, I think. I'm I'm not as familiar with Afghani culture, but in Central Asia and all of Tataria and the Arab lands and Persia and, and India, I think poetry is an enormous part of the social climate. And you open the uh, story before we even get to the introduction with a line from the Persian poet Rumi, Seawater begs the pearl to break its shell. Can you tell me how you found that line? And it's a gorgeous line and, and what it means for you. It is a gorgeous line. And um, I give all the credit to my um, amazing agent, Helen Heller. When it came time to name this story and to title it, she's the one, um, you know, we've been looking at different poetry and, and trying to find different inspiration. And she's the one who actually found this poem from Rumi. And the pearl that broke its shell is, is a line from that poem which I think is such a perfect fit for the story. And it really just captures the essence of, you know, the spirit of these characters. Um, so it, I give her all the credit for finding this, this little piece of brilliance and, um, and to Rumi for writing it. And I think it's, and I've had so many compliments from readers because once they read the story, it, it so rings true with them and they can hear the characters in that title. Yes, yes, it did with me too. So what would you like readers to take away from The Pearl That Broke Its Shell? There are a few things. I mean, with any novel, I think there are several messages that you would love for your readers to hear. Uh, and I think one for me is that there are a lot of struggles that girls and women around the world are facing. Um, I've, Like I said, I've painted them specifically in Afghanistan, but I think these translate to many pockets of the world. And in some ways, they can translate to almost every backyard. So every woman is facing some kind of obstacle. There are very few where, um, where a woman can say that she lives 100% on par with her male counterparts. Um, and that being said... I also wanted to drive home that women are very resilient and as are children. And these people are willing to work hard and put themselves on the line to overcome all these obstacles that are thrown at them. Um, but we do need to open these little windows of opportunity so that they can reach their potential. And the women of Afghanistan are showing us that right now. They're going above and beyond. I mean, they're really fighting and, um, putting themselves on the line, really, when it comes to elections and things like that. Um, when, even the, the artists, when you have singers that are going on Afghan TV, women who are performing, there's a countercurrent where people are, are objecting to seeing women on television and they don't want women to be outside of the home or, or so visible. And these women are under threat of death sometimes. But they're doing it because they feel it's important and because they want to change 
the way women are seen in their society and they want to change the world around them. And I wanted to show that, you know, Afghan women and women all around the world are incredibly resilient, tough and inspiring. That's great. Um, I understand you have a second novel that is almost done. I do. Um, it is It is pretty much done. We are scheduled to have it come out, released in summer of 2015. I believe it should be out in June. And it is the story of an Afghan family that is forced to leave Afghanistan because of the political changes happening. Um, and so a mother and her children, they make their way across some borders as refugees. And as they try to find their way through Europe... They find themselves absorbed into that underground where refugees are neither recognized nor wanted, um, and they can't turn back, and they almost, you know, can't go forward. Um, the family becomes separated, and they try to find a way to reunite. So I wanted to talk about the, the challenges, uh, both facing refugees and facing countries that are flooded with refugees in the context of an Afghan family and the dynamics of it, that it has. Well, it sounds fascinating. I wish you all the best of luck with it. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure chatting with you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Nadja Hashimi, author of The Pearl That Broke Its Shell. You can find out more about her at http colon slash slash nadiahashimi.com. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at capital N-E-W, capital B-O-O-K-S, capital H-I-S-T, capital F-I-C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.